You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. There have been significant recent advances in the identification and treatment of aortic disease. And with us today to discuss aortic disease from a vascular surgeon's perspective is Assistant Professor of Surgery in the Division of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Penn Medicine, Dr. Grace Wang. Dr. Wang, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Dr. Friedman. It is our pleasure. So when we're talking about aortic disease, are we talking mostly about aneurysmal disease in the chest and abdomen, or are there other things we should be thinking of? So both in the chest and abdomen, aneurysms sort of predominate in terms of what we do, either aortic stent graft repair or open repair for, particularly in the abdominal aorta. In 1991, Dr. Perotti really revolutionized vascular surgery when he introduced the concept of endovascular stent grafting for mm-hmm. abdominal aortic aneurysm repair. And he came up with this very sort of brand new concept of placing a stent covered with fabric through the femoral arteries in a retrograde fashion into the aorta, sealing it in the normal infrarenal aorta proximally and in the iliac arteries distally, thereby decreasing flow to the sac and causing aneurysm sac shrinkage. At the time, this was not well accepted by the people who did open vascular surgery, but I think over time, people grew to realize that this was a much less morbid way of treating aortic aneurysms, and it's really become the new gold standard for many of our sick vasculopath patients who cannot otherwise undergo open repair. So that was really something that revolutionized vascular surgery. I like telling the residents about it because I think they take it for granted that we do everything endovascularly nowadays, but there was Uh a time when people really thought it was a crazy idea. Is it almost akin to angioplasty and stent placement in the coronaries as opposed to cardiac uh, bypass surgery, it sounds like? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I think with any kind of new technology, initially people are sort of, it's like disruptive technology, as some people would say, but not commonly accepted at the time. But what was interesting about patients with abdominal aortic aneurysms in the early 1990s and the late 1980s was that if you weren't an open repair candidate, then you were essentially sent home to be monitored and you're sent home to rupture essentially uh, because there were no other options. But when endovascular stent grafts came out and we were starting to trial them, we actually had an option for these patients. So even though it wasn't very well studied at the time, it was obviously better than nothing. And Mm -hmm. so we were able to realize very early on that it was a much less morbid operation and a way to effectively treat infrarenal abdominal aortic aneurysms. And do we have longer-term studies at this point comparing efficacy? We do. So we have intermediate to long-term data, and by that I mean five- to seven-year data from multiple device trials showing that there is an initial survival and morbidity and mortality improvement with endovascular repair compared to open repair. Now, beyond the uh, 12- to 18-month period, the two survival curves for both EVAR and open repair start to overlap, And I think that that's largely a function of the fact that many of our patients have other health problems like coronary disease Mm -hmm. and lung disease, lung cancer, which they ultimately succumb to. But the short to medium term aneurysm rupture risk is certainly decreased with uh, EVAR. 
That's very interesting. And are there certain things that need to be taken into account with the endovascular repair that you don't need to in an open repair? For instance, uh, is there a higher clotting risk? Or do you need special anticoagulation, etc.? So there's no increased clotting risk because the stent is being put in the aorta and the uh, iliac arteries, which are very large vessels. So mm-hmm. that's a question we get a lot, whether or not they need to be on aspirin or Coumadin afterwards, and there's really no indication for either antiplatelet or anticoagulant agents after this procedure. What does need to happen is that the patients need to be surveilled regularly after their surgery. While during the initial operation, you can have a great result, meaning there's no evidence of proximal or distal endoleak, and you have a pretty good seal on the aneurysm, there are changes that can happen to the aorta over time it can elongate, it can sort of grow in diameter, and that change can actually change the relationship between the aorta and the stent graft, and in turn, the stent graft could migrate or could take a different turn from how it looked from the original implantation. And so it's important to remind the patients that they're not really done after the OR, that they need to continue to see you at yearly intervals at the very least so that we make sure the stent graft is in place and the aneurysm remains excluded. And should there be one of these complications where the graft migrates, are we talking then about the necessity of an open repair or can that be addressed in and of itself endovascularly? So in 11% of patients, some sort of reader intervention is required, but most of them, and I would say, you know, 70 to 80% of those patients, the revisions can be dealt with uh, endovascularly or the intervention can be done interventionally. What I mean by that is that if the a proximal end of the stent graft is no longer sealed with the uh, infrarenal aorta. Either a proximal cuff or stent graft can be placed to achieve that seal, or if there's what we call a type 2 endoleak, meaning that there are branches coming off the aorta, the lumbar arteries or the inferior mesenteric artery that are covered during the original stent graft placement, and sometimes you can get a lot of back bleeding from those vessels. There's a reversal of flow, and then they bleed back into the sac. Most of those are pretty insignificant. They don't cause sac expansion, but if after a period of surveillance the sac does seem to be getting bigger, you would intervene on those endovascularly, either through the back, through placement of coils, or transarterially, through placement of coils or or glue. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me to discuss aortic disease from a vascular surgeon's perspective is Dr. Grace Wang. Dr. Wang, with this lower morbidity, I imagine faster recovery procedure, has that shifted the decision to act on an abdominal aortic aneurysm such that we're operating sooner before they get to that six centimeter, seven centimeter size? That's an excellent question. I think that we've seen that question been asked in the general surgical literature where with the advent of laparoscopic cholecystectomy, we certainly see more gallbladders being removed compared to before when we had to do an open sort of right subcostal incision. It was much more morbid. And the answer is no, because they've done studies recently looking at patients who have undergone endovascular stent graft repair for smaller aneurysms, i.e. those measuring four centimeters in size. We do recommend repair generally when the uh, aneurysm diameter is five and a half centimeters in size because this is associated with a five to 15 percent rupture risk per Mm -hmm. year. Mm -hmm. But four centimeter aneurysms really don't carry that significant of a rupture risk. And with 
better medical management, it may be that the patient may stay at four centimeters for, you know, a significant period of time. The studies have shown that there's no survival benefit to intervening on these people earlier on. And if we do have someone who has that four, four and a half centimeter aneurysm, should we be following via ultrasound? Do we need CT? How often is there an accepted interval? I think at four centimeters, what I would say is that if they're an easy ultrasound patient and they have a chronic renal insufficiency where you don't want to give them contrast, um, ultrasound would be a reasonable imaging modality. And then if you see that it's grown to five centimeters, then order axial imaging with IV contrast at that time. You could also do a non-contrast CAT scan if the patient has chronic renal insufficiency. Uh That will give you enough information about the sac diameter. But I think six-month intervals will be reasonable, and then if it seems stable over uh, two of those clinic visits, then you might want to broaden that out a little bit. Again, it's a lot of uh, longitudinal follow-up, and that's the great thing about vascular surgery is you really get to know your patients. You develop a relationship with them. (laughs) Uh Sure, you're watching them carefully and and over time. Yeah. In terms of diagnosis, I think there are some authorities now who are recommending, at least in men and men who have ever smoked, a screening ultrasound at around age 65. Do you concur with that? Should we be doing that on women? Are there other higher-risk groups we should be case-finding on? Right. So if you're 55 and a male with a positive smoking history or you're 65 without any of those things, you can get an ultrasound and it'll be reimbursed by Medicare. This is part of the SAVE Act. If you're a woman, you have to work a little bit harder. You have to be 65 and have a positive family history or a current smoker. Now, having said that, if you have a high suspicion that that's what they have, then I'm sure that there's a way that, you know, it would be reimbursed through the hospital. Those rules are reflective of the fact that in the abdominal aorta, men outnumber women in terms of their aneurysm disease by five to one. This is different from the thoracic aorta where men outnumber women in a ratio closer to two to one. So there's just correspondingly more women with thoracic aortic disease compared to abdominal aortic disease, which is interesting in and of itself. And I think of thoracic aneurysms as the ones that are more likely to have a genetic component, a Marfan's or connective tissue type of thing. Is there any genetic component for abdominal aneurysms? There's a 20% genetic clustering for all aortic aneurysms, and unfortunately it's just all comers, abdominal and thoracic and thoracoabdominal aneurysms. So it's important when you're seeing your typical vascular patient for an aneurysm, they're going to be in their 70s, that you screen their children if they're above the age of 50, or at least ask about whether or not they've been screened or, you know, been noted to have an aortic aneurysm because there is a 20% genetic clustering. That seems very significant to me. Absolutely. And if there is this history, how would we look at the chest? What's the best way to look at the thoracic aorta if there's a, a history and somebody's hypertensive? So the easiest things are to start with a chest X-ray. It's not the most sensitive study, but it will certainly tell you if there's a 6-centimeter thoracic aneurysm present or a widened mediastinum, for example. For the abdominal aorta, an ultrasound would be the best study because there's no radiation, it's non-invasive, and there's no contrast involved. And if a patient asks me, you know, I've got that chest X-ray and it looks okay, is, is that enough, doctor? Can we be satisfied with the mediastinum not being widened? Yes, we can be because we don't, we're not treating those patients until it gets significantly larger. So as the initial screening exam, as you know, we're not getting all that information that we would need for intervention, but just really to look for any gross abnormalities. So that would be a good place to start. 
In terms of medical management, I would imagine control of blood pressure is paramount. Also lipids. Are there other things that primary care doctors should be paying close attention to? Yes, absolutely. So there have been multiple aneurysm sort of large database studies which show that the advent of statins have decreased the growth of aneurysm sacs and have improved um, AAA mortality. In addition to that, beta blockers still have a big benefit in these patients because obviously they usually have concomitant coronary artery disease. Hypertension and smoking are other big risk factors for aneurysm sac expansion and rupture. And so if someone's in the surveillance period, they have a four centimeter aneurysm, it's very important to ensure that their blood pressure is well controlled and that they have stopped smoking. Even if they've had a prior history of smoking, they're at significant risk of aneurysm expansion and rupture. But if they stop smoking, they can decrease their risk by half. And in the minute we have left, as you look to the future, do you see future or or additional new developments in the treatment of aneurysms? Yes. Well, it's very exciting. Obviously, the Achilles heel of stent grafts is that the commercially available devices that we have now don't allow us to put a stent graft from the aortic arch all the way down to the aortic bifurcation without covering several important branch vessels, namely the visceral vessels. Mm -hmm. the celiac, the SMA, and the two renal arteries. These devices are available at two institutions in the U.S., both at UCSF and uh, Cleveland Clinic, where they have investigational uh, device exemption. At these institutions, they have both branched and access to fenestrated grafts, where there are either holes within the stent graft that correspond to the origins of the vessels that you're trying to preserve, or there are branches that sort of go into those vessels. This is really the future of treating thoracoabdominal aneurysms, meaning aneurysms that extend from the thoracic aorta all the way down to the aortic bifurcation. Currently, we're sort of tied to doing these via open repair, which is, I mean, honestly, when our fellows and residents watch us doing one of these, they realize it's pretty much the longest incision that you ever make in all of surgery, extending from the scapula all the way down to the pubis. It's a very big procedure. It's a very morbid procedure. When it's done well, our patients have great outcomes. But certainly, if we can treat a thoracoabdominal aneurysm with bilateral groin incisions, it's, uh, you know. Huge advantage. Huge Huge. advantage. Huge advantage. Well, that is fascinating. I very much want to thank Dr. Grace Wang, surgeon and assistant professor of surgery in the Department of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Penn Medicine, for going through with us some of the new developments in the diagnosis and treatment of aortic aneurysms. Dr. Wang, thanks for spending time with us this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. Thanks so much, Dr. Friedman. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.